clear my schedule. Maybe that's not how you normally think, but I do think um, that this, you know, the Lord, uh, the Holy Spirit inspired and led Matthew to begin his gospel with this genealogy for a reason for our benefit. Um, And this really will help us, I think, celebrate the birth of Christ with more joy. Uh, And when we say Merry Christmas, our, our, our merriness, our merriment will be, will be deeper. Um, I think if we, the more we understand what Matthew is telling us through this genealogy, um, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but let me just go ahead and start off uh, by, by praying. So pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word to us, that we are not left in silence, we are not left to our own thoughts, we're not left to our own ideas. You've made yourself known, you've made truth known, you've made even knowledge about ourselves known through your word. So thank you for this, thank you that you have made us new, again, by your word, so that we can hear and understand and follow and obey your word. This is all grace. We would not have peace with you if you had not come to save us and to reconcile us to you. So we praise you, we thank you, we pray specifically for this time, um, this Sunday school hour as we're in here, as there's uh, other classes going on throughout the building, that your blessing would be on this, that we would see the wonderful, the beautiful, the delightful things that are in your word, and that you'd uh, equip us uh, to honor you and to love others more and more through your work in this hour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So by, by way of introduction, I want to just reflect a little bit about what is it that gets you into the Christmas spirit. Um, you know, maybe there's some traditions, maybe there's some things, some really maybe specific things. It's, you know, a particular type of cookie that really it clicks over. Now I'm in the Christmas spirit. You know, maybe you're one of the people who it's like the moment uh, Costco starts, at, you know, having Christmas trees available around August, I think. Uh, you're like, yeah, there we go. Not a minute too early. Um, or maybe you're, you're, you're kind of the, uh, the super traditional type where you're like, Christmas starts on Christmas and then I do the 12 days. I don't know. Or you're somewhere in between. Um, but at some point, I suspect you get into the Christmas spirit, I want you to turn to your neighbor. This is something I do in Sunday school class. I don't think most teachers do this. Turn to your neighbor. What is it that gets you into the Christmas spirit? Are you able to put your your finger on it? What is it that gets you into the Christmas spirit? bring it back up here. You can bring it back up here. Um, I suspect there's a number of different ways we can get into the Christmas spirit, and there's even different things we can mean by that, right? Um, what, I, what I'm thinking about is, is how is it that we are filled with awe and wonder? 
during this time of year? Or how is it that we're filled with awe and wonder come Christmas time? And I, I, I've kind of listed out in my head four different ways it happens. One, I'm neutral on. I, I, it, it's, uh, we'll see. It's, I'm neutral on. The other three are really important. And there, there might be more than this. But I suspect some of our answers fell into, or actually most of our answers probably just fell into the category of what puts us in the Christ, Christmas spirit. It's just kind of the nostalgia of the season, right? You just kind of let, you don't have to do anything even this time of year. You just kind of let the magic of the season wash over you, right? It's getting darker and darker, but now everyone's got their lights up. There's pretty trees up on the stage here and all over. Uh, there's there's move, maybe some favorite movies are playing. You're probably getting together with some coworkers and friends and family, and you're going to uh, you know, a Christmas program like we have here tonight. There's Coco. I mean, I could go on and on and on. There's songs with sleigh bells, right? All sorts of just different things that just kind of put us in, in, in the spirit. And this is good um, as long as it's connected to the deeper things, right? This is a, obviously a danger and sort of just the Christmasiness of Christmas, uh, completely cl- clouding the real central celebration of Christmas. But no, as long as all of the, that, that sort of nostalgia is, is plugged into something deeper, I think it's good. I, you know, I think maybe there's a number of songs that really capture looking at Christmas this way. Uh, I think of um, like the one that most comes to mind. It's certainly not the only one, but is uh, the song Silver Bells, right? It kind of captures this sort of the Christmasiness of Christmas, right? It's just the scene that's painted in that song, right? City sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style, in the air. There's a feeling of Christmas. Children laughing, people passing, meeting smile after smile. And on every street corner, you hear silver bells, silver bells. It's Christmas time in the city or wherever you fill in your own. It's Christmas time in Sioux Falls or Brandon, wherever you're coming from, right? Just kind of catch. There's just in the air. There's a feeling of Christmas, and sometimes that really does get us in the Christmas spirit. Hard to avoid. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas, and and that uh, I would con- I would compare this nostalgia to Christmas lights. They're really only useful if they're plugged into something that can actually give them some power. And that's what these other three ways of being filled with awe and wonder, really specifically on the birth of Jesus, um, can do. Because the second way I'd think about, you know, just our approaches to Christmas. What are the things we dwell on? One of the things we dwell on is just the mystery of the incarnation, right? Maybe this is your, your typical approach to Christmas. Is you just dwell on and ponder the, the miracle of the incarnation. What I mean by that is the fact that in Jesus, the, the one we're celebrating as, as this little baby in the manger is 100% fully, truly human, and yet, 100% fully, truly God, eternally God the Son, but born in time there as Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, this is, this is the miracle of miracles. This is, this is the most imponderable thing you could ever ponder. God in the flesh. So maybe that's what really fills you with awe and wonder, right? The sort of thing that John 1 keys us into that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God the word was God he was in the beginning with God 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then he goes on to say in verse 14 of John chapter 1, and the word, right, the one by whom there was nothing made that was made, nothing that has been made that wasn't made by him, right? That word became flesh, dwelt among us. This is the sort of thing we we celebrate in uh, in a song like Hark the Herald Angel Sings, one of my favorite uh, Christmas songs, right? When we say, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Or even in a, a, a newer song, right? It's uh, Sing We the Song of Emmanuel, I think is what it's called. It's a newer song, we just says this line, Maker of Mary, now Mary's son. So maybe the thing that really fills you with awe and wonder at Christmas, when you just ponder the miracle of the incarnation, Maker of Mary, it's now Mary's son, wow. Um, another thing that might fill us with awe and wonder is just to dwell in the nativity and the, the scenes around the birth itself of Jesus. You know, it's recorded in Matthew and in, in Luke, all these details. They're, they're well known, they're famous, they're rehearsed and re rehearsed. And we add lots of little details onto it too, right? The idea of, oh, there's three wise men and all these other details that sometimes we have trouble sifting out what's biblical and what's a little. You know, just added on tradition. But we do, uh, we do this when we, we, we sing like away in a manger, right? Think of that, away in a manger. We just kind of let all our focus there on this scene. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing. The poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. We just kind of focus in on this scene, this this amazing contrast of Christmas, right? The glory of God and the salvation he's bringing in the humility of the situation there and the manger. So maybe that's what fills you with awe and wonder, just dwell on this. Uh, as we just sang, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So it could be the nativity. This is good things to dwell on. Um, a fourth way is just dwell on the bigger picture. God's eternal plan of redemption. How again, in the song we just sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem, the hopes and fears all the years are met in thee tonight, right? The hopes and fears of all of the years, right? Everything that had come before, all the hope and anticipation of the Old Testament had led up to this, to this birth. That's why, again, this first song we sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus long expected. There's this history of anticipation. Um, so maybe you have a, 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 a way you tend to dwell, a way you tend to dwell on Christmas, something you tend to focus on. It could be the incarnation. It could be the nativity itself. Um, those are all good, but for this, this week and next week, we're really going to dwell on this plan of redemption because that's what 
Matthew 1, 1 through 17, the genealogy that Matthew gives us of Jesus there in the beginning of his gospel uh, puts our focus on how we see God's plan of redemption really coming to a focus, coming to a head, coming to his apex. Or maybe we'd even say um, what Matthew wants us to see is that the arrival of Jesus Christ is the culmination of all of God's work in and through his people throughout history. Right? Sometimes we, we see how Jesus is the fulfillment through really specific promises when we think about the Old Testament. Right? You think of uh, Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so Matthew in 1.23 says, Hey, that's what's happening here. Or, or just as the, the sermon passage a moment ago from Micah 5, And you, O Bethlehem, right? This really specific detail. You, O Bethlehem, no means least among the rulers of Judah, from you shall come the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's how Matthew records it. And tooth six. So sometimes it's, it's a specific connection point between the promises and the fulfillment. Oh, the virgin birth. Or the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. It's these specific predictive prophecies that help us see this is fulfillment. But Matthew, in giving us this genealogy, wants to see, again, Jesus' birth is the culmination of God's redemptive work in and through his people throughout history. That's what we're going to see this week. As we're going to see next week, it's the decisive turning point in history. So now I'll actually finally read our our, our passage here that we're going through this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 17. Let me go ahead and just read that here. It is worth reading through the whole thing. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. 
And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Thus, I do. We're going to get to that. That's a good question. I'm glad you're curious about that. Because, you know, sometimes you're like, Am I, should I point this out? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a question. There's an organizing principle here, right? Um, that you kind of go, what do we do with this giant pile of names Matthew just threw on our lap? Some of those, I am certain, were familiar to you. You're like, yeah. And then others, you're like, is that how you pronounce that? Um, and just go with it. Yes, that is how I pronounced it right. Um, you know, some of these, we don't, you know, we don't know what, what, what we don't know all these people. Um, and so it's tempting to take this pile of names or even just the idea of a genealogy and be like, oh yeah, that's kind of an old fashioned thing. Back in Bible times, they were interested in that, but it's something we've moved past like radio dramas and Conestoga wagons. And you can kind of list these things that have kind of just faded into history. And yeah, back in the old days, I can see how genealogy would have been important. But for us, now, we could just kind of skim over it in our, our daily Bible reading. Or even if we wanted to kind of see it as important, we, we don't always know what to do. So again, we're like, what do we do with this p- big pile of names? Um, thankfully, I, I don't think it's actually that hard because Matthew clues us in to what we should be paying attention to. He gives us an interpretive key. Uh, he really wants us to see three names as most important. So it's not going to be a quiz. I'm not going to ask you to be like, hey, uh, here's all 41 names. Can you list them? Or, or, you know, there's no quiz like that. You don't have to remember all these. There's three that he really wants us to key in on. That should really, when we hear, we should be like, oh, that's an important name. That's, that's something to connect to. It's Abraham. It's David. And it's the Christ. Jesus the Christ. Right? That's why at the very beginning, he points out that this is a book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of of David, the son of Abraham. And I think the fact that he calls them son is really significant. If you're a clued in Bible reading, you know that calling someone the son of David or the son of Abraham is a loaded term, right? In a technical sense, he could have gone on in the rest of genealogy and done this as, hey, this person's the son of this person, this person's the son of this person, Right? You could have told the genealogy in the terms of who's the son of who. But no, he doesn't. He, he, this person begat that person. This person was the father of this person. He saves drawing attention to who's the son of who for who's the son of David, the son of Abraham. So again, that's why even at the end, he, he brings it back. All the generations from Abraham to David, and then our 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. It's clear that this is how he wants us to see it broken. See these as the main chapters. Abraham, David, Babylon, Christ. And Matthew, had, he's carefully laid them out for us in these 14 generations. Right? I tried to point that out. Um, to, you know, Matthew said it, it's true, but just point out how you get to the 14 on your little, the little handout here that's available by the doors that, um, you know, in the beginning one, you have one and two, Abraham, and then Isaac is two. And then from there, you could just add one and Abraham to David. That is 14. He's right. You count them out. Uh, Solomon down to Jeconiah. That's your another 14. You start again with Jeconiah down to 
Jesus, you got another 14. He's right. This is, this is 14 each. Um, but Matthew's not giving us here just a, a statistical analysis of the generations that, lay, that, that led up to Christ. Not just like, wow, what a coincidence. 14 generations got you there. Wow, what a coincidence. There's another 14 generations. Wow, what another coincidence. There's 14 generations. You, 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 wanna, you want a statistic, yeah, statistical coincidence? Uh, I'll give you a baseball one. Second baseball reference here this morning. That's good. Um, do, you know who, do you know who Cecil Fielder is? Yeah, good, good. Some of my people. Uh, one of my yeah, great baseball players when I was young, Cecil Fielder. Uh, he retired uh, with 319 career home runs. One season he hit over 50 home runs. One season he hit over 40 home runs. Four different times he hit over 30 home runs. Do you know who Prince Fielder is? More recent Major League Baseball star. The son of Cecil Fielder. Do you know how many home runs he retired with? 319, the same as his dad. Do you know how many seasons over 50 home runs he had? One. How many then over four, it were 50 plus? How many more of 40 plus? Same as his dad, once. How many of 30 plus? Same as his dad, four. Right? That is a statistical coincidence. This 14 generation thing is not that. Matthew is intentionally delivering this Old Testament flyover, right? These, this, this history of these generations to us in 14 generation increments. In fact, if you were to go and look at all these cross references that I gave you for where these come from, you'd see that he even has to do some compressing at times. Uh, we use the word father to mean like, I am Micah and Molly's father. In a very technical sense. My dad, Don Montgomery, was not their father, obviously. We, we know that's just how the word works. Begat, the word here can have a little bit more flexible meaning. Obviously, this most common use here is just the father. Same way that I'm Micah and Molly's father, so are these people the father of the one listed out here. But often it's, it, it can also simply mean like they brought about and so sometimes it's a grandfather or even more generations are compressed into one of these generations. Um, so, for example, uh, end of verse 8, you ask the question, who is Uzziah's dad? Well, he says Joram, the father of Uzziah, but if you were to look back into 1 Chronicles 3, where you get kind of the real short staccato genealogy here, you'd see um, it can be confusing because in 1 Chronicles, Uzziah is called Azariah. But if you were looking back, you'd see that Joram is not the generation right before. There's been a couple generations kind of skipped over. And there's some... I think, actually, the reason those are the generations Matthew skips over in this royal genealogy has to do with the fact that um, those were uh, kids from um, Ahaz's, from Ahaz, evil king Ahaz, 
from the northern kingdom. Why did I not write this part out? Um, in the northern kingdom, right? So there's, there's some reasons of why he skipped over those. But he, he skipped over. And so to get that 14 compressed in, you can see the same thing. And Josiah is not the father in the way we talk about it of Jeconiah there in verse 11. He's the grandfather. Um, so you can see Matthew does some compressing to intentionally deliver to us. Not trying to mislead us, right? He, he knows the word father doesn't have to mean uh, the way we might technically think it is. He's, he's intentionally delivering to us 14 generation size chapters of Israel's history. And so then you ask the question, why, why 14, right? Well, there's some discussion as to why 14 is how Matthew presented it. Um, it could be, um, turn to your neighbor, why do you think these are presented to us in 14 generation chunks? What do you think? All right, so there's, there's, a, there's a couple different answers people give. It, it simply could be that um, the first chapter from Abraham to David is the one we have the best kind of, there's, there's the most Old Testament kind of references, right? We have each of these. Matthew pretty much copied and pasted, right? Yeah, he wasn't using Microsoft Word, but, you know, he, he did the equivalent of copying and pasting from Genesis and Ruth, this genealogy. And it could be, hey, there's 14 there. That's kind of a seven-ish number. Let's just go with it. And there's just nothing more to it. I don't think that's really sufficient. There could be some numerical symbolism going on, um, both in the completion of that, of, of the, the, the idea of seven being this complete perfection, this fulfillment, but also even in the name, the name David, right, in in, in Hebrew, there's a tendency to, or sometimes a tradition of giving different letters, uh, numerical value. And so if you have essentially the, 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 the three letters that make up David's name would be da- King David. So David's name, significant name, are a four and a six and a four. Any math majors in here? What is four, six, and four? 14. Yeah. Oh, okay. So that's something. People push against that because this wasn't written in Hebrew. This was written, we have it in Greek. But it could be that, I mean, just David's name just had the significance of 14 to it. Um, so I think, yeah, it's just drawing his attention to the Davidness of it. I think that's, 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 that's very significant. Um, I tend to see it, though, and I'll admit that this is. There may be very reputable people who have thought maybe even more about this than I have who disagree, but I, I really do tend to see it as three pairs of sevens, right? which would be six sevens, which means you're about to lead up to the completion of the seventh seven, right? 
everything leading, this history leading us up to Christ is leading you up to this final fulfillment. All history is there, kind of on the edge. We've got six of our sevens. Now we need our seventh sevens to bring God's redemptive plan to completion. Like I said, this is the culmination of history. That seems to fit really well with what Matthew is trying to do in his gospel and even here. So, Matthew, again, is wanting us to see this as the culmination of all of Old Testament history. It's a little fly over the entire Old Testament, even beyond, right? As many of these names go beyond what we have recorded in the Old Testament, kind of where the Old Testament stops and there's this intertestamental history, right? He leads us through that to hook everything going back up to Christ, everything going back to the story in Genesis all the way up to Christ. And there's lots of things that Matthew wants to tell us in his gospel. He's going to give us the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get to see Jesus on Calvary. We're going to see Jesus of the Great Commission. All of these other highlights of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew wants us to to hear them first connected to everything God had promised and done in the Old Testament. It's led up to that point. So we're going to focus this morning with the rest of our time. Oh, not too bad. Uh... On the fact that Jesus here is the son of Abraham. Because very early on in scripture, we're encouraged to watch for the son or the seed of Abraham. Right? There's lots of times in life we're like told to like, don't get your hopes up. Uh, that's, that's often advice that we're given. And it's often good advice, right? Just in life, don't get your hopes up. Uh, disappointment uh, meets us around every bend. Uh, I'll just use as a quick illustration something that's probably on my mind more than it is on yours, and you're probably in the right on this, but I think about NBA basketball. And I think about Victor Wembenyama. Do you know who Victor Wembenyama is? He was called by a talking head on ESPN, I think this past summer, the greatest pro sports prospect ever. He was this French basketball player who's like freakishly tall and athletic and really is a a wonder to to watch. And so the San Antonio Spurs this past year got the first overall pick. So they got to be the ones who drafted Victor Wembenyama, Uh, at least the greatest NBA prospect since LeBron James. Wow, okay, you get Victor Wembenyama. He may turn out to be great. But last I checked, the Spurs had lost like 15 games in a row. Uh, they've got, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. So he, he may turn out. But just one good example. Don't get your hopes up. But the son of Abraham's different. We're encouraged to get your hopes up for the son of Abraham. Why is that? First, I think we need, a little, we need a little context. So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. We don't have time to unpack the whole Bible here, um, or even this whole story. I'm just going to assume that it's fairly familiar, these first opening chapters. God's making a very good world. One we would call blessed, one we would say that is flourishing. But in chapter 
2, then in going into chapter 3, Adam and Eve turned from God and his word and towards themselves. They trusted in themselves. And ever since, there has been curse in creation. We see this in verse 14 and going on from there in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord is confronting the serpent and Adam and Eve. And the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, right, turned God's image bearers away from his word, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Remember one of the main commands, be fruitful and multiply. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So as sin enters in, we see creation, or maybe even more specifically, the ground is cursed. There's pain and difficulty in childbearing. One of the main commands, be fruitful and multiply, is now met with this great difficulty. There's friction in the relationship between husband and wife that Adam had rejoiced over. This is the last flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. There in the middle or the end of chapter 2, right? There's now friction in that relationship. There's futility in our work and in our bread making, quite literally, and it all ends ultimately in death and returning to dust. There's now curse. But there's also a promise. We're not supposed to think that curse is just the new normal that we need to settle into and just get used to. No, we're supposed to get our hopes up because there's a promise. There's a promise back in 15 that we're supposed to overhear even though the Lord's talking to the devil to the serpent, we're supposed to overhear this. That between your offspring and your offspring, there'll be enmity, and he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Right? There is going to be some uh, suffering going both directions, but it is not congruent. It is not even. No, there will be a bruised heel of Eve's offspring, but a triumphant crushing of the serpent's head by the offspring of Eve. Right. There's going to be victory and vengeance. So who's the offspring? Is it Cain? No. 
Is it Abel? No. Is it Seth? Maybe, maybe it's Seth. It's worth reading that. We've got time to read Genesis 4, 25, 26, because this is significant. Is it Seth? After the whole ordeal with Cain and Abel, Abel being killed and Cain sent off, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Oh, maybe this is the offspring they're waiting for. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Seems to me that these verses are telling us that no, Seth is not it. Maybe you, you knew that, and neither is Enosh. But they know that they're looking, that they're waiting. They have their hopes up. That's what it means to call on the name of the Lord. It's almost a euphemism for prayer. Like, how long, O Lord? You've made promises. Come and deliver. We have our hopes up. They began to call on the name of the Lord, wondering when he would fulfill his promise. So who is it? Maybe it's Noah. Some people seem to think it was Noah. Lamech thought it was Noah. Or at least had a lot of hope in Noah. Genesis 5, 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, And called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech is clearly uh, intimately acquainted with the curse we saw back in Genesis 3. That's a great summary of what it's like to live under the curse. Painful toil of our hands. Maybe Noah is going to bring us rest or relief. That's really much what Noah's name means, is rest or relief. And, and, and Noah does bring relief, does he not? Uh, he, he brings salvation through judgment into a new creation. That's why the next few chapters of Genesis spend so much time on that story. Noah brings some relief. But Noah's descendants lead us eventually to the Tower of Babel. Right? Genesis 10 and 11. I mean, that's essentially Adam and Eve's I'm my own boss writ large. That's what the Tower of Babel is. It's all of society getting together and turning to their own wisdom the way Adam and Eve did. So that leads us to Abraham, this big turning point in the book of Genesis. Randy made my work a little bit easier by referencing this in the sermon. What is significant? Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, his name at this moment, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth, or if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know the word earth there is really the same word for ground. Cursed is the ground that the Lord said in Genesis 3. All the families of the ground shall be blessed. 
Right? And the families of the cursed ground will be blessed. And as you read the story, you learn that if, if Abraham obeys God's word and lives by faith, unlike Adam and Eve, he trusts his word by faith, this is what will result this great expansion of blessing. Right? Right, this is not simply uh, a, a word coming from Abraham's dad, Terah, who's hoping for the best. Right? Oh, you know what? Maybe Abraham's the one. This is straight from the Lord saying, through you, through your offspring, through your son, offspring, singular, there's going to be blessing for all the families of the cursed ground. The futility and the separation of the curse will be replaced by blessing through Abraham's family. Right, this, this is what we sing about, sing about and celebrate. Um, we, this is already baked into our Christmas celebrations, right? Another one of, if I was ranking my uh, top five Christmas songs, I already mentioned Hark the Herald Angels Sings would be in there. Also in there, Joy to the World. And what do we sing in Joy to the World? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found far as the curse is found far we repeated a bunch right that's how the melody goes right right why, why are we singing a christmas song about thorns and the curse well it's because uh, isaac watts who wrote that hymn knew that is a big deal that Jesus, the Lord who's coming, is the son of Abraham. And so the good news of Abraham is that he lived by faith. He's granted a son in really humanly impossible circumstances. That's what the Abraham narrative really focuses on. How is this son going to come about? Uh, the book of Hebrews describes him and, Ab- as, 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 him and Sarah as, as good as dead. It's not the nicest description, but it seems accurate. These are not people you're expecting a son to be born to any moment now. But by you get to that son, Isaac, being born, and, and Abraham even believing the Lord through the impossible command of taking Isaac to go sacrifice him, and demonstrating that he really did live by faith and not by his own understanding, quite contrary to Adam and Eve. Um, his, 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 his faith leads to righteousness. And so in Genesis two fifteen to 18, the, Abra- the angel of the Lord calls Abram a second time from heaven in this vision and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and not withheld your son, your only son. You've lived by faith. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sands on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth, of the ground, the cursed ground, be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Through Abraham's faith, it has been locked in. That promise about what will happen through the son of Abraham is now locked in. 
We are really meant to get our hopes up. So that's why Genesis, I mean, you just look through the, the rest of the book of Genesis, it, it slows down and pays attention to the son of Abraham. You're constantly keeping your eye on the ball. Where, what's happening with this son? I mean, it's interesting that in Genesis 1 through 11, before that promise to Abraham is made, what's kind of the scope of the book of Genesis? It's creation-wide. Talking about creation itself and this cosmic flood and the Tower of Babel, about all of these nations and all of this. And then suddenly, once you get this promise to Abraham, only thing Moses cares about in writing out the rest of the book of Genesis, really, is following along what happens to this seed, what happens to this family. And that's why we have such good records. I'm, again, on this handout here, you see, I've got a cross-reference for each place there in the Genesis narrative where it announces the birth of Isaac and announces the birth of Jacob and Judah and Perez and there and on and on. It keeps good track of this son of Abraham. It is a big deal. It reminds, it, it's, 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 it reminds me and then, by, and then surpasses by a magnitude of millions uh, my favorite uh, like billboard or screen game when I used to go to minor league baseball games. I got to confess, I've never been to a Canaries game since we moved here. It's kind of shame on me, I guess. But growing up, we'd always go to the Kane County Cougars. That is some grade A, uh, single A, but grade A uh, minor league baseball entertainment, the Kane County Cougars. And you'd have the big score, right, the big uh, screen there, and uh, one of the games that would get played there because you know the baseball was it was entertaining, but you know you're bringing kids to these things, you need other things to entertain them. One of the games where you'd have uh, the 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 cups come down, and one of underneath one of them, there's a ball, right, and then they get they get shuffled around, or you've seen this, or maybe you've had this done to you in person, right? Someone's at the, the table there, and they've got the cup, the ball under one cup, and they're switching it all around, moving around. You've got to keep your eye on it, and then they're, they're done shuffling around. You've got to choose, like, A, B, or C. Which one of these cups is the ball still under? You've played this game before, right? Um, and everyone's you cheer, like, it's under A, it's under A, it's B, B, right? whatever, you know. And then they start off, and they reveal it up, and it's like, oh, it was under B, and everyone who guessed B is like, ah, we got it. It's exciting, right? That, that's kind of what's going on here, right? You're wanting to watch what happens to this seed of Abraham. Where does it go? Where does it lead to? Genesis, Scripture watches the seed of Abraham like a hawk. And what we learn is that generation after generation, none of them are the full fulfillment. There's steps along the way. That's why the story of Ruth isn't content just to tell the story of, um, of Ruth and Boaz, right? Op- open up to the book of, of Ruth. And this is, a, I mean, this, it's, a, it's a great story proving the faithfulness of God, even if you ended before the end but for some reason after telling this story the main thing we're supposed to see then is how this seed of Abraham connects to this son or this seed the family line of David right we're supposed to just keep watching it along so we get the great kind of final scene verse 13 of chapter 4 in Ruth so Boaz took Ruth 
she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you, more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, The son has been born to Naomi. And you could really cue the credits right there. Story is wrapped up. Naomi's been taken care of. Ruth is taken care of. Their faithfulness has not proven to be in vain. They go on. They named him Obed. They want to connect this. He was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez, right? This is where Genesis leaves off with Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Next week, we're going to really get to unpack why this is such a big deal for Jesus, our Savior, to be the son of David. We get to see how the promises to Abraham get funneled through David and get amplified in him. Um, But for now, we simply need to see and and to know that Jesus, Jesus the Christ, is the son of Abraham. To know that he is indeed good news for the world, right? When we say joy to the world, the son of Abraham has been born. That's not how this song actually goes, but we could sing it like that. It is good news for the world that the son of Abraham has been born. The the, the angel was not guilty of hyperbole or exaggeration when we read in Luke 2.10 that the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Because what God promised to bring about through the son of Abraham was for the whole cursed creation. The whole cursed world. The hopes and fears of all the years, right, as we're singing, hopes and fears of all the years are met in Jesus Christ, this son of Abraham. Now, just one last little application here is that I've just asserted and I hope biblically demonstrated why this is good news for the world. The son of Abraham, the promised son of Abraham, seed of Abraham, has been born. We sing about this in a lot of Christmas songs, right? Joy to the world. Or the one we started off with this morning, uh, we sang, Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. So we've asserted... That what every nation and what every longing heart really longs for and desires is Jesus' birth, is this Savior, is the one who's going to rescue us. It's the one who's actually going to be the one to remove the curse, to crush Satan, to restore us to our God. But you've got to ask, like, wait, 
desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. If you just went around, I don't know, you just went to the United Nations. You don't have to, we can't talk to everybody on the planet. You're just like, let's just go talk to one representative from as many nations as we can talk to. How many of them are like, yeah, Jesus, that's, that's who we, we love more than anything. That's our great desire. That's, that's, that's who we want. That Our government exists to exalt Jesus. Now, if you come to Sunday nights normally or Tuesday mornings, we're praying uh, for, for both Operation World and Voice of the Martyrs. Because the experience of most people, or many people, is that the nations rage. Right? Just talk to individuals, right? The joy of every longing heart. Just take a survey of Sioux Fallsians. Right? Oh, you, you long for Jesus, right? That's, that's what you know, right? You know, we want Jesus to be born in us today. Again, how we sang just a, an hour ago in the little town of Bethlehem. Right? That's, that's what everyone's really longing for and wishing could happen. No. We, 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 there's actually a lot of opposition. People would not come, come and hear, hear us saying, joy of every longing heart. That's not, the joy, that's not the longing of my heart. We don't want anything to have to do with Jesus. We want Jesus out of here. We're setting up laws to actively get him out of here. I think what we need to recognize as we recognize that Jesus is the son of Abraham, when we confess that and we believe it and we celebrate it, there, there, there is going to be a hint of what comes off as arrogance to that. That we really do know what people want and need more than they recognize, more than they even want to admit. This is why when motivated by love, we're still willing to go up against opposition. That people say, no, that's not the longing of my heart. That's not the desire of our nations. We're like, well, we still want to send people there. It's going to be hard and they're going to suffer. I still want to talk to that person. I still want to represent Christ to them and pray for them and find ways to share and, and live out the gospel among them. Right? Why do we press on against that opposition? Right? And not just kind of say, I'm done with you. Because we know. We really do, as, as, as much as in their flesh they would hate the idea that Jesus is the joy of their longing heart, we know the one we're celebrating at Christmas is what they were created to receive. We know that their biggest problem is the, the curse which he came to override with blessing it's the peace he came, right? Again, Randy's last point there. Be our peace, reconciling us to God. We know this is the thing they most need, even if they hate it or find it silly or stupid or backwards or whatever it is. We know this is what they need. So we can get in the spirit of Christmas. We can celebrate. We can have joy um, because the son of Abraham has been born, born in a manger a way seeming so contrary from his glory, certainly the glory of any other king uh, who, who, who could plan their own family, the way their family is, gives birth, would never choose what God chose. And yet this is eternal God taking flesh. This should cause us to have awe and wonder 
and even free us to kind of do some of the fun, jolly things, what we talked about, whatever gets you in the, the, the spirit of Christmas, gingerbread men or an Amy Grant tape or whatever it is for you, right? We're here to, it's, it's a right time to celebrate um, and to let others know why we celebrate, even if it's not something they, in their flesh, want to hear.